0: This is Tanya Hall, author of Ideas, Influence, and Income. Write a book, build your brand, and lead your industry. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host. Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book, or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just a few minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. You can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash MarketingBookPodcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, and if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash podcast. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. I'll have more on Blinkist in a few minutes. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Tanya Hall to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her new book, Ideas, Influence, and Income, Write a Book, Build Your Brand, and Lead Your Industry, published by Greenleaf Book Group. Now, make a note of that publisher name, because Tanya Hall is the CEO of Greenleaf Book Group, the first hybrid publisher, which we'll explain what that means in a few minutes. Having worked closely with retailers while building Greenleaf sales and distribution channels, Tanya knows firsthand how the power of a book can be amplified through a strong author brand, and in turn, how a brand can be amplified by a book. She writes regularly on personal branding, leadership, and the publishing industry for Inc.com, and she also hosts the podcast Published, which guides authors through all areas of publishing. And, interesting fact... Before joining the publishing industry, Tanya worked in Hollywood as a television producer. Tanya, congratulations on Ideas, Influence, and Income, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me.
1: So, I'm just curious, you know, Tanya... Was it hard getting a publishing deal from the company you're CEO of?
0: <laughs> no, but it was a little challenging to get the team to raise their hand to work on it with me. <laughs> oh,
1: okay. Well, you know, it it made me think of uh, some movie I saw with William Hurt, I think, years ago, where he was a doctor, and he made all the doctors check into the hospital as patients so that they would see what it was like <laughs> to be a, you know, a customer, I guess.
0: Yeah, I guess it's something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So. I want to mention uh, this. We've had so many interviews, 175 or so on the podcast, and this is the first book. About publishing a book, and so it's you know a bit meta there, but it it was very interesting, and it you know you you say that the book is really more for people who are going to write nonfiction, and I thought it was just it was just ideal for a lot, and you talk quite a bit about content marketing and social media in the book, and it was the, the type of thing where a lot of marketers and salespeople and business owners who are listening to the podcast this will really resonate. This isn't about how to do a nonfiction book. So one thing I I did another thing I want to mention is Joe Polizzi, who was the Founder and head of uh, Content Marketing Institute, he always said that there were three things that really got Content Marketing Institute off to a roaring start and really fueled their growth. One was their their blog, their content, and one was his public speaking, and the third thing was the book. He said those three things were like, you know, the the the, the fuel that, that really uh, got things going. So tell us how... You came to write this book.
0: Well, it was really a labor of love. And I think like so many authors, after many years of the people who I work with, the authors I work with, saying, geez, this is so helpful when you explain this, that, and the other, why don't you write a book? And it's almost a flip comment, you know, but <laughs> uh-huh. at some point, I started taking it more seriously, because I do take all of the authors through this sort of trifecta that makes up the title of the book, um, thinking of it in, in terms of an ecosystem of ideas, influence, and income. And uh, I really realized at some point that having written so much over the years, I've been at this company for almost 15 years, I already have so much of this content developed that I thought, well, surely I'm halfway done. (laughs) 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 And so that was, and I talk about that in my book, you know, that's a great starting point to sort of inventory what you have, uh, because you may not have as far to go as you think. So that's what I did. And then I got overconfident and lost all of that momentum when I realized I had some hard work to do to pull the rest of it together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was, Still a, still definitely a long term project, and I learned so much about what an author goes through as they go through the emotional roller coaster of writing a book.
1: Right, right. So I guess you got a little even more empathy for for what they're experiencing. Hmm. Absolutely. So Tanya, I read this book on an airplane. And in fact, I was going to and from Texas, but not where you live in Austin. And I, in fact, when I opened it today, my boarding pass was still in it. And so when you you open the book and you talk about how you like to talk to people on airplanes and you tell them that you, you know, if you get to talking to them, you run a publishing company. And I wanted to ask you to tell the listener what reaction people have, particularly people who may have written a book that they didn't think did very well.
0: Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite stories to tell because you know it's such a great icebreaker and people will ask you on the airplane, so are you headed home? Are you do are you traveling on business? And for me, it's often business, and so I'll tell them, oh, business, and of course, then what do you do? I run a publishing company. Oh, wow! So then they do one of three things: they tell me about the book they're reading now, which is awesome. I love learning about whatever is on people's radars and how they feel about what they're reading. Or they tell me that, yes, they've written a book, and that's usually this very sheepish admission, (laughs) because nobody's ever really happy with how the book performed, and so it's almost like they're trying to shove it under the rug, oh, I wrote a book, but there's always a disclaimer, "Eh, it didn't really do so well. Mm -hmm. Or they get this little twinkle in their eye, and they tell me, oh, I have this idea for a book, which is super fun, because then we can start sort of dissecting that and figuring out what their path may look like, but... In either of those last two cases, whether we're trying to figure out what went wrong <laughs> with their book launch or we're trying to figure out a path forward for them to work on whatever their book may be, um, it's just super rewarding to help that kind of feel more real to them. And sometimes the The verdict we sort of arrive at is a book might not be the right vehicle for what they want to do. You know, it's just another container for content and it's for certain types of content. And I'm biased. I think it's for a lot of content. But, you know, for example, people who are writing about technology or current events, things that are quickly changing, Mm -hmm. that can make for a challenging (laughs) book writing experience.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like writing a book about a specific social media platform.
0: Exactly. That's mm-hmm. an example.
1: I mean, the strategy might be well, but uh, otherwise I, I think you'd be better served by going to some, some blogs. You also mentioned that when the people are sheepish and they say that didn't work well, you, you kind of say to yourself, oh, I wish I could have spoken to them beforehand to uh, send them on the right track. So now you're going to have to bring copies of your book uh, whenever you fly <laughs> so you can hand it to these people and say, please, if you're thinking about a book, just read this. You don't need to hire us. Just let me let me help you. So, the big question, though, is why should someone write a book?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and to be honest, I don't think everyone everyone should write a book.
1: Mm-hmm. I've read a few that shouldn't have been written.
0: <laughs> As have I. <laughs> As have I. But I think the people who understand the role—and and I'll speak in terms of a nonfiction book here, because yes. that's really what my book is about—but mm-hmm. the the people who should write a book are those who have some— first of all, have something to say and have a platform that they want to advance. And by that, I mean, they stand for something in terms of a brand as a thought leader, usually an expert in their space. And they're trying to plant a flag to establish some level of visibility or credibility within their industry. So the book becomes this foundational brand tool. And one of the things that I try to teach in my book is to think of it as really the DNA of a bigger brand effort and something from which you can pull lots of content publishing deal allowing <laughs> that you can then repurpose in other formats so that you're really getting the most bang out of that buck, if you will, of the, of the hard work that goes into writing a book. If you are strategic about it on the front end, it's more than a book. It becomes really uh, this blueprint of content that you can use in lots of other formats to reach different audiences who all want their content in different ways.
1: Mm-hmm. But, but how do you know if you're ready to take the leap? In other words, is it, is it truly a, a bolt of lightning that, that happens to your, your customers?
0: Uh, some of them get that bolt of lightning and then it just uh i don't know leaves a little scar or something (laughs) they never quite finish but i think there there is a level of readiness that you have to have i meet a lot of people who will get as far as to finish sort of an outline which is no small accomplishment like that's actually a lot of the heavy lifting is Mm -hmm. to identify the the logic behind the book the flow and the framework and the message of course but writing it like i said it's hard work and so sometimes if that spark isn't there if they haven't been struck by that lightning bolt and they don't, of course, have the, I hate to say they don't have the discipline, but if they haven't found a way, I guess, to work some structured time into their schedule, for instance, to make sure that they're constantly chipping away at that book, it does tend to slip to the back burner and it's hard for them to finish and then they lose energy and momentum. So there has to be a certain level of readiness on top of their being qualified and um, somebody who's, you know, got the credentials and the ideas to carry the book.
1: Mm-hmm. So quickly let's talk about the the publishing options that people have these days. It's no longer just having to get a a deal from a big let's say a New York publisher. There's there's like three basic models you talk about these days. Self-publishing, traditional publishing, and then hybrid publishing because I promised the listeners that we would explain what what hybrid publishing is.
0: Sure. So and that's right. The the self-publishing side of things, I think people are largely familiar with now. That's like Create Space and some of these online platforms primarily where you can literally upload a manuscript, push a button, and you're quote-unquote published.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
0: I might take issue with that term, but that is the reality of it.
1: Well, it means you don't really have to go through that gatekeeper.
0: That's right. It's democratized publishing, mm-hmm. really.
1: For better or worse.
0: For better or for worse. And there are certain books where I think that's the correct path. But the challenge a self-published author will often have is, of course, there's a certain stigma that's lessening, but there's still a stigma around self-published authors that creates some roadblocks for them, particularly in the realms of uh, distribution, definitely. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean getting the book into the brick and mortar stores, which are still half of the retail market. People tend to sort of turn up their nose at that, but it's still a substantial way
1: to sell books. Oh, interesting! I didn't realize that.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, the media also is—it's just due to the pure volume of self-published titles. It's very hard for an author with a self-published book to get any attention from the types of media outlets who can really kind of give it some legs, so that it gets the uh, demand it needs to sell. So there are certainly benefits to self-publishing, especially around speed to market and ownership of rights, creative control, and obviously the higher royalties that you you keep because it's your Book, you're bootstrapping this thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then on the traditional side, of course, you have all of that access to distribution and you've got the reputation of the publisher to help you get the media coverage you want. But then you're giving up that nice creative control and the ownership of your rights and uh, the financial investment is very different. You're getting a small advance, but because of that, you don't make as much of the royalties on the back end, because that's really like having venture capital Mm -hmm. (laughs) to launch your book, to put it into business terms. So our hybrid model is really sort of a marriage of the two, where we're trying to bring those strong qualities of each side, the speed to market, the ownership of the rights, and the higher percentage of the royalties from the self-publishing side, but then marry that with the distribution muscle and the quality and the reputation that comes from the traditional side. And we do that by being very selective about the titles that we bring on. We do about 120 books a year. And then We have in-house distribution. That's very unusual for a publisher to keep in-house, but it's really the history and the backbone of this company where we started pitching our titles into you know, Barnes & Noble and the airport accounts, international markets. We handle that all in-house. And so we are able to develop better product because we have that direct line of feedback coming from our retail accounts, which we're always working to broaden as well. So it takes an author who is willing to obviously put some skin in the game because they're investing financially in their in their books publication but if they have a strong direct sales market and again the book is pe- a part of a, a bigger brand effort, it makes sense for them because they need to have that brand control. They own the books outright, so it's more profitable for them when they're doing things like back-of-room speaking and selling in bulk through appearances and things like that because they already own the books. They don't have to buy them back from their publisher. So we tend to work with speakers and consultants and people who are otherwise thought leaders in whatever industry they're leading.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the the media likes books from traditional publishers or or publishers, and even my little corner of the marketing podcast world, I get a book just about every day now, which is Mm -hmm. a great thrill for me. And I really have had very, very few self-published books. And the reason why is not because there aren't some good self-published books. Mark Schaefer is an example of a guy who writes terrific books, and he self-publishes them, but the quality is really erratic. Some of them have been just not good and some of uh, most of them are, just aren't that good i found and the issue is that i only have so much time and i know that if it comes from a traditional publisher that that author has more than likely been tortured through an editorial <laughs> process which is going to make for a better book
0: <laughs> right yeah it's that whole list that they represent has been vetted
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that that really is the big difference and that's how we're similar to a traditional publisher as well it's a it's a vetted list and there's a brand built around a reputation for quality that we have to maintain so mm-hmm. you know there's plenty of stuff that we have to say no to yeah and it does it means something for sure
1: it does to me yeah and it's it's really a shortcut you have to i have to take because i am going to read the book and i need to make sure that it's uh, it's kind of been vetted so there's a bit of social proof going on there but let's go on to authors and the, for the people, the listeners who are thinking about publishing. And it's interesting, you say that one of the biggest roadblocks for authors is that of sharing their ideas. And at the end of the book, you even mentioned that there's like a trend of authors who, who don't think they have much. Can you talk mm-hmm. about what's what's going on there?
0: Yeah, it's, it's usually one of two things. Either they are reluctant to share their ideas because there's this fear of that idea being stolen and, and then we have to go through this entire process of helping them unpack that to understand that that idea, the, the idea in and of itself, let's say it's fearless leadership, something like that. For some reason, I work with a lot of pilots. Oh, <laughs> and really? fearless Yeah, this fearless leadership concept comes up a lot. So in that case, it's not just the idea of fearless leadership, it's also you and your background and your story and your history and how you present yourself and the tone and your humor, all of these things contribute to the overall message of the book and nobody, nobody can duplicate or replicate that. So, it, I mean, it really is just an individual story that is told by you and owned by you by virtue of you living that life and having that experience. So, once they understand that, then um, that's, an, that's actually the easier, I think, roadblock to get through that their ideas are are just one piece of this larger brand tool that we're building. The rest of it is them. The second piece is uh, is really a fear of criticism and and yes, a concern that maybe the book just or the idea doesn't have enough meat to it to warrant fleshing it out into a book and and there's some vulnerability, you know, because for many of these people whatever this book idea is, it really represents their thinking. And to put yourself out there and say, here's what I think and what do you think <laughs> mm-hmm. is, is super vulnerable. I experienced it even with my book. I was like, well, I don't know <laughs> if people are going to agree with this or not. They may tell me that I'm silly and this is all just a waste of two weeks of reading.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs> so, you know, that fear is a little bit Uh, more of a challenge to work through, but that's what editors are for and that's what your team helps you work through. Mm -hmm. I certainly had parts of my book where I sat down to write it and I was very confident that I could plow through it. And I realized, oh man, I actually don't know what direction to go in here and what to say and not to say. And so the editor is a proxy for the reader, and they will help you understand, especially when you're so close to your ideas and your work, Mm. they'll say, here's what I think your reader needs to learn from what you want to say, and why don't you approach it like this? So that's how we work through that type of fear, is like really kind of rolling up our sleeves and getting into what we perceive to be certain weaknesses in the idea or the development of the manuscript.
1: Yes, and it it makes me think of the term imposter syndrome, which uh, oh yeah I think is, is rampant. Every even the very very best people, best authors, sometimes are uh, you know taken over by a little bit of imposter syndrome. But I want to ask you to explain another concept that I was not familiar with. And I thought it was very interesting, and it's the what you call the paradox of choice as it relates to thought leadership.
0: Yes, the paradox of choice related to thought leadership really speaks to the overwhelming number of choices we have and voices really in the marketplace, especially around people who are trying to grab some mindshare from us as we're being inundated with messages, whether it's through websites and social media and blog posts and television and radio and advertising. So, Our society, of course, has leaned away from being influenced by things like advertising, and we turn to what you mentioned earlier, the term social proof, and we look to others whose opinions we respect to help us make our choices about what we're going to buy or where we're going to travel or where we're going to live even. So those people who can plant that flag as a thought leader, they help the marketplace overcome that paradox of choice because they become the trusted voice in whatever field they're leading or whatever industry. They represent and the consumers are hungry for that. They want to know I don't have time to figure out this that or the other or which juice diet to do Mm -hmm. or you know how to go about buying a house or whether I should buy a house. So they look for that respected voice to guide them. And that is where somebody who can really establish themselves as thought leader in their industry helps an audience overcome that paradox of choice I talk about.
1: So that's why thought leadership is so powerful, and it's just a it's an explanation that I I had not seen before. And yes, I am going to be stealing that and borrowing it and talking about it with full attribution, though. Uh, <laughs> so no problem. <laughs> changing gears. Now, be honest. How do you, a publisher, go about evaluating the viability of a book concept?
0: That's a great question. So here, we go about it a little bit differently than some other publishers that I know and have talked to about this process, because we've trained the entire staff to always look for the possibilities in a manuscript. I think a lot of traditional houses, especially, are, you know, editors are trained to be critical. That's how their minds work, and that's fine. But it can lead to a tendency to look for fault and dismiss something, probably also just due to the volume of submissions they get but we, ta- we tackle it the opposite way to say, where are the opportunities here? Can this book be turned into something that will sell if it's not already in that condition? And then how would we get there? So that's the whole process we go through as we look at our submissions. Part of it is certainly the content and not just whether it's good content that delivers a message and ideally a message that is actionable for the reader. That's definitely, I, I think that makes all the difference in terms of long-term, ongoing, sustainable book sales, but also who is the author, what is their platform, what are their credentials, what's the current reach, and if they don't have a strong audience and if they're not aligned with the audience they're trying to reach, what do we have to do from a marketing and branding standpoint to help them get there? So that's a lot of the criteria that we look at. And then on top of that, we have sort of a a little, not a little, but we, we have a noticeable niche, I'd say, that we serve with the content that we represent, And I like to tell people it's really books that help you lead a better life or be a better person without consciously calling it that. (laughs) That tends to be the type of content that we do really well with. So it's, you know, it's business and health and wellness and parenting, self-help, personal development. Those types of things are just where our sales channels are strongest. So if somebody comes to me with fiction, for example, we do have a selection of fiction titles on our list. But if you heard me talking to those authors, you would think I was trying to talk them out of it because (laughs) I'm very transparent about this. This is not where our sales channel strengths lie, just because we don't have the massive volume there that a traditional fiction publisher would have. But a lot of them like the team here and they like what we do. So they they would like to go that route regardless.
1: We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about how Blinkist can help your career. Listening to the Marketing Book Podcast says more about you than you may realize. In addition to being physically attractive, Seriously, I've met many of you and you are a very attractive audience. It also means that you're curious and serious about your business success and you enjoy learning new things. And your interest in learning also means you're either successful or will be because all the research indicates that big learners are big Earners. Plus, with all the changes happening in marketing and sales, continuous learning is crucial. But there's only so much time, and you need to manage it carefully. And unless you're, say, the host of the Marketing Book podcast, you may not be set up to read a book every week. That's where Blinkist can really be a time saver and a career booster. Blinkist, spelled B L I N K I S T, is a smartphone app that takes the key insights from over 2,000 best selling nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes or less. Instead of having to wade through hundreds of pages of a book, spending hours reading each book like I do every week, you can go through two books in 30 minutes. And the books that are on Blinkist are really top-notch, including several books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR by David Merriman Scott, Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday, Epic Content Marketing by Joe Polizzi, Everybody Writes by Ann Hanley, Hug Your Haters by Jay Bear, and many, many more. It took me hours to read those books, but you can get smart audio summaries of each one in just 15 minutes. Blinkist has been selected as one of the best apps by Forbes, New York Times, and BuzzFeed, amongst others, and it's used by over 1 million people. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast right now, today, to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan when you join. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. I recommend getting the yearly plan, that's what I did, and getting 20% off because you're going to want to keep it anyway. But don't worry because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. No questions asked. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast, and that means you're going to be letting them know that you support the Marketing Book Podcast and that you want that discount. You'll get the free version or 20% off your annual plan. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. It's a great, inexpensive, and very smart investment in your professional development and career. And now, back to the show. Well, now, Tanya Hall, you're the CEO of Greenleaf Publishing. I don't want to tell you how to run your business, but I just have an idea for you, and that is, I think that uh, Navy SEALs are now required to write books as part <laughs> of their graduation. So you might just want to reach out to some of my friends in the Navy, and you know, that might that might be a, a, an additional pipeline into some more some more work <laughs> for for Greenleaf. Now, explain though. This is very interesting to me. I- explain why, when it comes to selecting the books you publish, you will choose a strong speaker whose writing needs work, before a strong writer who is a weak speaker.
0: Oh, absolutely. That blows people's minds sometimes. But yeah, so a strong speaker who may not have the writing chops is definitely my preference because I can work on that book behind the scenes. We can develop the message so that it conveys on paper which, by the way, is often very, very different than being able to deliver a keynote with charisma from the stage. If you if you take some of the most powerful speeches in the world and just transcribe them, they may not look like much on paper. <laughs> a lot of it comes from the delivery. So it's it's easy enough, and we've got a team here to work on fleshing out the actual content of the book. But if we flip that, and I have a fantastic book that has a great message and it's differentiated but I have an author who can't represent it well publicly then I have a I have a message really with no with no speaker literally there's no mm-hmm. there's no megaphone for it I have no way of effectively conveying that to the world or or at least giving it the powerful you know, path forward that it deserves and that it needs to create demand. So the, the author is so critical in representing their work. And a lot of them will sort of try to farm that out You can hire a publicist. You can have a sort of a team underneath you doing the marketing support. But when you're a thought leader, the audience wants you. And there's no substitute for that. So there's sometimes a lot of work that has to go into things like media training and making sure that somebody is as polished as they can be and ready to speak publicly about their ideas and their book.
1: Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting also? I don't know if it's the other side of the coin, but this is my theory. So it's it's probably not accurate or scientifically based. But... I think some of the best books have come from people who are professional speakers. And I think part of it is because they know what they already know what topics resonate with an audience. In fact, Joey Coleman, who wrote Never Lose a Customer Again, he told me after the interview his book was terrific and it was long. And he said that he sat down and spoke for 12 hours in a studio and just basically spoke the whole book. Mm hmm. And then he had it transcribed, that was his first draft. He Mm -hmm. started with the speaking, and then I I could just tell it. There's been some other authors who are professional speakers who I think they have a special insight into into audiences. But let's move on. Now, there's a big metaphorical hook in my mouth if you envision me as a fish. Of course, I read your (laughs) book, and then I'm like, dang, I need to hire these Greenleaf people. Because there was one part where you talked about scheduling time to write a book, and I – I can only imagine that's the one of the biggest issue people have towards even thinking about it. And after I read that about how to schedule your time to read a book, I started thinking, dang, maybe I could write one of these. <laughs> the book did its job then. <laughs> yes, that tingling means it's working.
0: That's right. <laughs> yes, that, and, and again, it's so nice that I was able to go through this experience and understand this firsthand. because. Most of us, if not all of us, listening to this podcast and considering writing a book, we're busy people, and we're running companies, and we're working our day jobs, and we've got families and pastimes outside of the office, and 60,000 words is roughly what you need for a 200-page book, and that's no small chore. So, As I mentioned earlier, quite often an an author will start off with a lot of energy and they'll power through the first third of the book or the manuscript. And then they just kind of lose steam because perhaps they've left the harder stuff for the end and they (laughs) know that's what I did. And then they get to that part and they're like, oh, man, this is really hard. So for me, it took being super disciplined. And this is what I recommend to uh, our Greenleaf authors as well. And protecting that time to write on your schedule. So I calendared it and I had, I think, three two-hour blocks a week that were carved out and reserved just for writing. Nobody could book me for a meeting and, mm-hmm. um, I, and I often was not in the office because for me, if I'm in the office mentally, I, I switch into a different mode where I'm listening to everything around me mm-hmm. and
1: I'm easily distracted, as I probably should be. (laughs) Well, and it takes a lot of time cracking the whip. I mean, come on. No, I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I got to walk around knocking heads together. That's right. That's right.
1: (laughs) I doubt it, but let's go with that.
0: But I just, it's a different mindset to... Physically put yourself in an environment where you can be creative and let your ideas come forward. And for me, that that took physically relocating myself, was a sort of a message to my brain. Oh, this is writing time and we're going to protect this time. And I'm not getting up from this chair until I have X number of words. Mm-hmm. Even if I hate those words, by the way, they land on the page, doesn't matter. I have to have the output and then we'll fix it later. So, yeah, there's a whole section in my book about kind of getting through just that grind. Uh, of getting those required words out of you and onto paper and not judging yourself as you go through it. Just let the words be free.
1: (laughs) For me, it reminded me of just, I've got got on my calendar, there's certain days I just go to the gym. And there's probably about the same amount of time I'm at the gym is the amount of time you described that these authors are doing, where they just put time aside and starts doing it. And it sounds like they, they get into the grind, and then they start to feel better about it. And they're starting to Probably feel like they really, they really can do this. And so anyway, that was, that was inspiring. And it just sort of like, I saw that and it was sort of like Penn and Teller showing how a magic trick is done. And it was like, (laughs) wow, that's, that's, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's really interesting. So one of the other big, big topics I think is so important for people to understand. And that's the platform, which you mentioned earlier. And you mentioned that if ideas are your foundation, when it comes to building a successful platform, influence is your most important tool. And without influence, great ideas can die. So could you explain what you mean by a platform and why it's really a requirement?
0: Definitely. So in the publishing industry, we use the term platform to mean an audience who is ready to receive your message. And I say that because there's an example in my book of the, the Jenner sisters, Kylie and Kendall Jenner wrote uh, a fiction book. And by all accounts, the Jenner sisters have a gigantic platform. They have this huge audience of, oh my gosh, it's like 200 million people of combined Instagram followers, which is more than the population of Russia <laughs> and Japan but <laughs> the the fiction work that they wrote which i th- believe was intended to ultimately become a film vehicle for them it's sort of this uh, feminist sci-fi book <laughs> completely flopped it's called the rebels of indra and it you know by publishing standards not a strong seller and it really underscores the fact that you have to have an audience that's not only substantial in size but their interests are aligned with what you're doing. This was a departure for what the Kendall, uh, excuse me, the Jenner Sisters audience would expect them to put out on Instagram. Right. And they may not be huge fiction readers. They're more interested in, you know, the fashion and makeup and all that kind yeah, of Yeah, things stuff, I'm interested is, in. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, but you know, and that's not to knock them. That It is what it is. It's just not aligned. So, same thing with authors. The The platform development piece, I think, is often underestimated because it really takes years of planning, and it should start early around the same time that you're writing the book. Oh, so so you shouldn't
1: start building it after you've written your book?
0: (laughs) We laugh because, unfortunately, that happens so often. We're
1: laughing to keep from crying.
0: That's right, because writing, I, I totally understand. Writing the book is hard enough, and then to think, oh, now I also have to identify and develop an audience to receive this. How do I find time for all of this? So in the book, we talk about some of the things that you can do to make sure that you're tackling both of those things as you're developing the book. Because if there's not an audience to receive your message at the time that it launches, yeah, that it's the proverbial, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, doesn't it make a sound. If your book launches and there's nobody <laughs> paying attention, that's just a total bummer because of all the work that goes into that. So the development of that audience and then sustaining that audience as well. You work so hard to capture them and to get them onto your list. Then your book comes out and you want to stay in front of them because they're potentially future customers or maybe they're readers of future books that you're going to publish or perhaps they're going to book you for a speaking engagement. And as we've talked about, there's just there's so much coming at us in terms of messaging and people trying to grab our mind share that if we aren't constantly being hit with those additional impressions, we tend to push stuff out of our minds and we'll forget who that guy was that had that interesting marketing thought that we heard the other day. Right. <laughs> so there's, there's something that his name was Douglas, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> not me, of course. But you know, when I asked you how do you evaluate a book, one of the things you mentioned, for those listeners that were not paying attention, you said What kind of platform do they have? What do they already have? And I've read a book by Michael Hyatt called Platform, and he's have a soft spot for publishers. I believe he was the CEO of a publishing company. And he talks about how, from from what my takeaway is, they really just don't look at an author unless they've already brought a tribe saying who's going to buy it. What kind of engagement do you have with potential buyers already? So the platform's important, but, I mean, come on, Tanya Hall. A website, social media, public speaking, video, newsletters – Now, those are all a waste of time for an author, right?
0: (laughs) Those are all, well, some of them may be, frankly. It just, it really depends on the author, but no, those are all things that are, again, part of the overall effort to convey your message to an audience, and People, you and I will have different preferred methods of receiving content. You know, for instance, I know a lot of people who go to a news website and they hate watching the videos. They hate it. They're just like, I just want to read the story. Stop making me watch videos. And I know other people are like, I don't have time to read a story. Just show me a video. So Mm -hmm. all of these really speak to different learning methods for humans. You know, some of us are people who learn by watching and some of us learn by doing. And there's lots of research around this. And same thing with content. Some of us want these short little snippets. Some of us want the book, some of us want a video, some of us really need to connect with the person behind the message by seeing them deliver it face-to-face, and so that would be speaking, and then video, of course, is great for that, or even things like this, a podcast where we can have more of that human connection. All works together, and it all builds this influence that the the speaker needs to carry that message forward.
1: Right, and to help the listener understand that they don't have to be overwhelmed. Can you explain what you mean by the, the concept of focusing on faucets?
0: Oh, yes. That's one of my favorite terms to throw around here. And, and I use it quite frequently and when we talk about business development here at the office because focusing on faucets really speaks to opening up relationships and partnerships that can bring you ongoing business or ongoing visibility versus – The one-off, I connected with the person I sat next to on the airplane, talking about my book, and yes, that counts. (laughs) But isn't it better if I can, say, connect with another influencer who's somewhat aligned with my content? So for me, perhaps it would be somebody in content marketing. And they say, oh, this is a book about writing a book, and I don't really speak too much about books and what I do, but it would be great to have a tool to give to my audience. And I know they would appreciate that. That faucet just opened up at really a a pipeline for me of probably thousands of eyeballs versus the one person on the plane next to me. So in sales, it would be equivalent to hunting with a spear versus hunting with a net. Mm -hmm. I think that's the other metaphor you often hear. Those partnerships are in terms of thinking about our time and the effort that goes into all of this, when we, when we are trying to be efficient and use our time as strategically as possible, that faucet focus is really what makes the biggest impact and shows the strongest results in building a platform and then ultimately translating into sales.
1: Mm-hmm. Great concept. Loved it. So, Tanya, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: If they took one thing away from this book, it would be to start thinking strategically from the outset <laughs> and <laughs> and plan ahead. Because I, I talk about that, as you know, a lot in the book in terms of really taking the time on the front end to fully understand your audience. You you would have you would die if you knew how many submissions came into this office, and we asked them, who's the audience for this book? And they say, everyone. And (laughs) it's just not right. (laughs) And so to narrow that down and to get hyper-focused on, no, it's not everyone. It's, you know, suburban mothers who have two kids and a golden retriever and drive a Mercury Mountaineer. You know, that's what I'm looking for. I want to know... And are
1: you... worried about certain things. Yeah. That's right.
0: What are their needs? What's their lifestyle? And how do we fit into that need in a way that's different than our competition? So, to, to really understand that at a, at a fundamental core level... Charts the course for the rest of the book and also all of the effort that goes into publicizing, promoting, building the uh, platform, and ultimately monetizing it. Because if we don't understand our audience, any marketer can tell you, we will ultimately fail in whatever we're launching.
1: Amen. And companies that understand their customers are the ones that are doing better. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies think they understand their customers, but they really don't know as much about them as they. They think they do or they or they or they want to know. So what books have inspired your work and career? I've never been able to ask a CEO of a publishing company that question. Yeah,
0: no problem. I hope pressure. you don't get in trouble for the answer. You know, I do.
1: <laughs> well, there's about a thousand, Douglas, those that have been published by Greenleaf.
0: Right. Every single one of those has <laughs> inspired my career. And we'll have a link to those. No. <laughs> Yeah, it's called GreenleafBookgroup.com is a link to all of those books. Yeah, I, I have been in trouble for favoring certain books, but I can tell you it, it it seems a little cliched, especially for a publisher to say. But how to win friends and influence people. Um Carnegie, of course, it, it's the first self-help book and it's one of those books that I reread regularly because it's it's fascinating to me how even though it was written so many years ago it's so relevant to today's even the political landscape but also just how we treat each other as people and our expectations of each other as we go through life it's it's a book that i have my i had my daughters i have teenage daughters that i had them read as well so i'd really just think it's it's a good way to approach not only business but life in general so that is a book that i'm happy to say is mainstay on my nightstand
1: and if that were the first time this book had been mentioned on the podcast, uh, I'd, I'd be surprised. But it's been mentioned by many authors, and it's it's uh, there's another book called Scientific Advertising for people that work in the marketing and advertising field. Where you read that, and I think it was written in the twenties, and you like How to Win Friends and Influence. You can't believe how relevant it is to today, or you might say how prescient they were.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's remarkable, really. And it just kind of goes to show that you know the circumstances change, but people are people, and the way that we connect to each other as humans is probably fundamentally the same there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on top of that, I, I would say, as a storyteller made to stick, the Heath Brothers, in general, mm. I love yes. all of their books. But that book really, really underscored why story is important. I think we all understand that story is is how people will connect to a message and remember it. But it just does such a fascinating job of breaking down the why and how our minds work and how our memories store information that it helped me understand, okay, when I present for instance, I tend to be, I favor data. And I, I just geek out on it. And I love to share charts and graphs and analytics. And of course, the audience, their eyes are glazing over. <laughs> and so it, that was a lesson for me to, okay, even if people like me, some of us like that, most of them don't, they want the story. And so I have to consciously work to integrate those stories into whatever content I'm developing. And I did it in the book. I had to, oh, and work in this story here, work in that story there yeah, to drive home a point and create that connection so that there's an imprint in someone's memory. So that book was um, absolutely important for me. And, and I would say even if you don't have to be running a publishing company to harness the power of story, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know, the Heath Brothers for me, I, I won't include everybody, but they're sort of like Ryan Holiday or Daniel Pink. Just just buy whatever they're publishing because you know <laughs> it's going to be phenomenal. <laughs> I may have to go back and reread that one.
0: That it, It's a good book to reread. And you know, I'll do a hat tip to one of their other books called Switch, which is really about dealing with change. It's a book that I point to quite often with my authors for a different reason. The content's great, but they have done such an amazing job in that book. When we talked about knowing your audience, they they definitely are speaking to one core audience in that book in terms of a, a business reader who perhaps is running an organization that's dealing with change. But They have all of these tools and resources that they smartly direct you to their website to access that take the book and then tr- sort of translate that content for a different vertical that they still serve very relevantly. So, for instance, they may have switch for social change or switch for your personal life if you're going through a divorce or something like that. It's, they take their concepts and apply them to a different audience that, you know, they didn't try to serve all masters in the book, but that's there. And so I think the way they did that was just so smart. And I have a lot of respect for the, the thoughtfulness that goes into an approach like that.
1: Mm. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your new book?
0: Sure. So my website for the book is ideas, influence and income.com. And there's a ton of information there. You can sign up for a mailing list that will, um, just like the Heath brothers, that will let you receive certain exclusive bits of content, not so much that you will hate me, but little (laughs) things that are intended to uh, kind of take you down this path of hopefully writing and launching your book in a strategic way. So that's the main book website. And then our company website is greenleafbookgroup.com, where you can learn more about the books and titles we produce in our business model as well. And then um, of course on Twitter, I am at Tanya Hall, T-A-N-Y-A-H-A-L-L.
1: And on Twitter, I'm Marketing Book. So if you're listening, please reach out to Tanya, at least on Twitter, to thank her for being on it. And if you want to include me in the conversation, please do that. We'll also include a link to your book website and to your LinkedIn profile. And if the you're listening on your smartphone, uh, I'm talking to the listener here, and you've subscribed to this show on your podcast player, which is like iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play Music, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. So, a closing excerpt. Sorry, I just couldn't resist. (laughs) Being a thought leader is no longer a conferred title bestowed by a handful of third parties like media institutions and universities. Now those third parties still factor into the authority mix, but your ability to directly connect with and influence your audience has changed dramatically. You have an audience waiting for the answers you provide. You need to devise a plan to impact and connect with them. The name of the book is Ideas, Influence, and Income. Write a book, build your brand, and lead your industry. The author is Tanya Hall. Tanya, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And that closes the book on episode 177 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor Blinkist to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to that special offer at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Alan Gannett to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. FedEx guy just showed up. Matt, we're going to redo this. Thanks. Thank you. You need a signature? Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The Professional Parts People. Oh, 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 all right.